Our Easter, our Resurrection Day text this morning will be from John chapter 20, as Pastor Kevin mentioned. John chapter 20, and we will read verses 1 through 10. Listen along as I read from John's account of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter 20, verse 1, the Holy Spirit says this. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth, O Lord. We ask now, Father, that you would sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. We pray in the name of your resurrected Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, amen. What is the meaning of life? According to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the answer is 42, which is just another way of saying that any quest for a once and for all explanation for existence is absurd and arbitrary. Mahatma Gandhi said that every moment of your life is infinitely creative and the universe is endlessly bountiful. Just put forth a clear enough request and everything your heart desires must come to you. The Dalai Lama said our prime purpose in this life is to help others. And if you can't help them, at least don't hurt them. Buddha said, your purpose in life is to find your purpose. 
and give your whole heart and soul to it. Joseph Campbell wrote that life is without meaning. You bring the meaning to it. The meaning is whatever you ascribe it to be. Being alive is the meaning, is what he said. What is the meaning of life? What is the purpose of existence, if there is any? Is there meaning in the universe? What is the point of history? Is there a point to history? Is there intention in how history has unfolded? Well, the the Apostle John gives us the answer to those questions here in John chapter 20. This narrative reveals to us the center of why God created all things. The answer is found on that very first Easter morning. We've all come to church this morning with different physical, emotional, spiritual, or philosophical baggage. To some degree or another, we've all wrestled with questions of meaning and purpose. Maybe you're like me and you've come to church deliberately this morning. You know why you're here. You you want to be here and it's on purpose. Maybe you're here out of some cultural or family obligation. You really don't want to be here, but... It's going to hurt your mom's feelings or your grandma's feelings or your brother or sister's feelings if you didn't come, so you're here. Maybe you were invited here this morning and you're, you're skeptical. You're not into religion. You're not into church. Maybe you're spiritual. Maybe you're not, but someone invited you and so you were polite and you came. Regardless of how you ended up at Christ Community Church this morning, I want to invite you, if you will, to open up your mind and open up your heart to this scripture for this short period of time that we'll look at it together. This text is the very word of God. Pastor Kevin explained well that the whole Bible is the word of God, and the whole Bible is about Jesus, and well, John 20 is in the Bible, so... John 20 is the word of God, and John 20 is about Jesus. I can't convince you that this text reveals the meaning of life. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. My aim this morning is to clearly explain the meaning of this passage, and my contention that I humbly offer to you is that upon seeing the meaning of the passage, that you will find the meaning of life. My prayer is that the Holy Spirit will open your eyes to see the beauty of Jesus Christ, and that by doing so, you will find the meaning of life. That's it. That's the goal. I'm not going to try and sneak anything by you. There's no Trojan horse. You know up front I believe that this is the Word of God and that it reveals why we were all created and how we all ought to live. And I pray that the Holy Spirit will convince you of that as well. 
The first thing we notice in John chapter 20 is the setting, the setting of this text. This historic event occurred on the first day of the week, Sunday. John 20 verse 1, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early. All four Gospels attest to the fact that Jesus of Nazareth resurrected from the dead on Sunday morning. Matthew 28 verse 1, Mark 16 verse 2, Luke 24 verse 1, and of course John chapter 20 verse 1. The fact that this happened, um, the fact that Jesus raised from the dead on a Sunday morning, then changed a liturgical reality for the people of God. You see, ever since Yahweh gave Israel the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai after the Exodus, God's people always gathered for worship and for rest on Saturday. The Fifth Commandment in Exodus 20 verse 8 says, "...to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy." And from that point forward, that's what Israel did. Every Saturday, they did not work. They worshiped and they rested. They remembered the Sabbath day and and they kept it holy. But with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the day of gathered worship and rest for the people of God has changed. It's changed from Saturday to Sunday. You could say... There's a sense in which Sunday is the New Covenant Sabbath. The last Old Covenant Sabbath happened on what we remembered yesterday, Holy Saturday. The first New Covenant Sabbath happened on Easter Sunday. So this is the only time in history where we had two back-to-back Sabbath days. For 2,000 plus years now, the church has always gathered for worship on Sunday. It's fair to ask, is it it wrong for us to gather for worship on another day of the week? Well, of course not. We gathered for worship Friday night, for Good Friday. But we do not gather for worship on another day of the week in place of Sunday. We may gather for worship in addition to Sunday. But we do not gather for worship on another day of the week in place of Sunday. Much to the chagrin of Seventh-day Adventists and megachurches that have Saturday night services everywhere, God's appointed day for the church to gather for worship and rest is Sunday. And so at Christ Community Church, we gather every Sunday. Just as the global church has done for 2,000 years, we gather every Sunday around the word and the sacraments. Why? Because Sunday is the day that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Again, church, there's there's no tricks here. I got nothing up my sleeve. This is pretty straightforward. What day do you celebrate your wedding anniversary? The day you got married right? What day do you celebrate your birthday? On your birthday. Jesus rose from the dead on a Sunday, and so we gather every Sunday to celebrate and to remember. 
Jesus was not resurrected on Saturday. Jesus wasn't resurrected on Wednesday. Jesus wasn't resurrected on any other day of the week. Jesus rose on Sunday. And so we gather for worship and rest on Sunday because a Sunday was the first day of the new creation. Jesus inaugurated the new creation on a Sunday morning. And so every week we remember, we celebrate. Church, you know as well as I do, there is no shortage of books, articles, tweets about time management advice. The best advice I can give you from the Bible about scheduling and time management is to view your week like a Christian. Sunday is the first day of the week. Live like that is true. Regardless of what your work or school schedule tells you, Monday is not the first day of the week. Sunday is not the weekend. Sunday is the first day of the week. Begin every week by gathering for worship and rest with God's people, celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ around the word and the sacraments with the church. The second thing we notice from this pericope is that the, that, that women were the first witnesses of the empty tomb. Now, John only mentions Mary Magdalene in his account, but the synoptic gospels let us know that there were other women with her. John probably only mentions Mary because of the conversation that he has with Jesus and Mary in verses 11 through 18. Also, uh, in the first century, the, the way that they wrote, oftentimes you could write one person as a representative of a group. So this was like the Mary Magdalene group. Uh, but regardless, the Synoptic Gospels and John tell us that, that women, that Mary and these other women, were the first witnesses of the empty tomb and the resurrection. Now this is an important point when we think about defending the historical reliability of the gospel accounts of the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. In the first century, women were not valued as full citizens. In the first century, women were not even legally allowed to give testimony in court. That is how they were viewed by the culture. But God doesn't view women that way. In his providence, God ordained that these women would be the first witnesses of the empty tomb. In a sense, these women are the apostles to the apostles. They bring the apostles the good news. And so the point is, if John was just making this story up, if Matthew, Mark, and Luke were making this story up to try to convince people that Jesus rose from the dead, even though he really didn't, then they would not have made women the first witnesses of the resurrection. The story would be far more culturally palatable to that first century audience if John had used Peter or James or even himself as the first witnesses. But he didn't. Why not? Because it's not the truth. Because it's not what happened. 
would have been far easier if that had been what had happened, but it didn't. The truth is that these women were the first ones to see the empty tomb. Again, if you keep reading in John chapter 20, starting in verse 11, you'll see that Mary, here in this account, is the first person to speak to the resurrected Christ. Jesus values women in a way that that first century Greco-Roman culture did not. Women are equal image bearers and full citizens of the kingdom of Christ. They were the first to see and they were the first to speak. And so even on this Easter Sunday, I say thank you, Jesus, for my wife, for my daughters, for my mother, for all of the faithful women of Christ Community Church. Well, after Mary finds the empty tomb, she then runs to Peter and John to tell them what she found. As John does all throughout his gospel, he never refers to himself by name, but John calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. Man, there's... There's some beautiful theological truth there, isn't there? John did not find his identity in his family heritage, in his work, or even in his ministry as an apostle. John finds his identity in the fact that Jesus has loved him. If you're a Christian, that's your identity too. Regardless of whether you're married or single, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're educated or uneducated, whether you're famous or obscure, whether you're athletic or crippled, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, then you are the one whom Jesus loved. Here we find another proof for the historical reliability of the empty tomb. In Deuteronomy 19.15, Jewish law demands that the witness of two men uh, be established for there to be credible evidence. So for evidence to legally be considered credible, there had to be two men as eyewitnesses. And so even though the women were the first witnesses, here we learn that two Jewish men, Peter and John, also witnessed the empty tomb. Peter, John, and the other apostles would contend for the rest of their lives that they not only saw the tomb empty, but that they saw Jesus physically resurrected for 40 days afterward. Church tradition even tells us that Peter was crucified upside down because he would not deny that he saw Jesus resurrected from the dead. So Mary runs to tell Peter and John, and upon hearing Mary's news, Peter and John then run to the tomb of Jesus. I think there's more running in this passage than all the rest of the gospel narratives combined. John flexes a little here. He lets us know that he outran Peter, got to the tomb first. But when John got there, he froze. He didn't go in. He looked in, but he didn't go in. Remember, John's the one who writes this account. He's letting you know what happened. 
Of course, in true Peter fashion, when he gets there, he walks right in like he owns the joint. Peter does not hesitate. Which brings us to the third thing that we notice in this passage, namely what Peter found when he entered the empty tomb of Jesus of Nazareth. John 20, the second part of verse 6 says, He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Man, I love that verse 7 says that the face cloth of Jesus had been folded up in a place by itself. This is another argument for the historical reliability of the resurrection of Jesus. Because if grave robbers had stolen the body of Jesus, or if Jesus' followers had come and taken his body away, they they wouldn't have unwrapped the linen cloths. They would have just taken him. It'd be too much work. It'd be too time-consuming. If Jesus did not actually die, as some argue, that Jesus swooned on the cross or that Jesus passed out on the cross and that he woke up in the tomb and got out himself, which if you were here Friday night and heard Pastor Kevin's description of what Roman crucifixion entailed, you would know that even if somehow Jesus had lived, he wouldn't be getting up and unwrapping himself. But even if he had, in the most far-fetched of circumstances, Jesus would have woken up in immense pain and there would have been a sign of struggle on his way out of the tomb. But that's not what happened. Jesus was resurrected. Now, we can't know this for sure because no one was there but Jesus himself. And Scripture does not explicitly tell us. But several commentators seem to think that the language in the narrative here in John 20 implies that the linen cloths, the ones on his body, would have been laying as they would have been when Jesus was dead there. So normally, as I said, if, if someone was going to be unwrapped or, or taken out of the linen cloth, they would, they would be unwrapped. It would be a long process to get it undone, and they would kind of be thrown everywhere. But, but again, these commentators seem to think that the text implies that maybe somehow the body of Jesus was like translated through the cloths, that the cloths were laying as they would have been when Jesus was laying dead, almost as if the, the cloths that they supernaturally fell through the resurrected body of Jesus. Again, no one knows for sure. This is speculation. What we do know for sure that John tells us is that Jesus folded up the face cloth that had been on his head and he set it down. So the face cloth would have been wrapped around his head like this, to keep, his, to keep his mouth shut, keep it tight. And John tells us that Jesus took it off and he folded it up and he laid it in a separate place. First of all, what a picture of Jesus' humanity here. 
Jesus intentionally folded up the face cloth almost as if to say, listen, I was here and I'm going to tidy up before I go. He folded it up. Jesus folding up the face cloth, I think more importantly, is a picture of his calm control. Jesus' death wasn't a surprise to him. And Jesus' resurrection wasn't a surprise to him either. If you had been reading the 19 chapters of John preceding this pericope, you would see that Jesus preached over and over again that he came to die for sin and he came to resurrect on the third day. All according to plan. The face cloth which had been on Jesus' head was not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Jesus was calm, cool, and collected because his work was finished. As Psalm 22 told us, he had done it. And that brings us to the final thing that we see here in this Easter text from verses 8 and 9. Look at verses 8 and 9. It says, Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. As for yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. John tells us that when he saw the empty tomb, when he saw the linen cloths, when he saw the face cloth, he believed. Man, N.T. Wright paints a beautiful picture of the evolution of John's faith here. I'm just going to read it to you verbatim. He says, John had faith before. He had believed that Jesus was the Messiah He had believed that God had sent him, that he was God's man for God's people and God's world. But this was different. He saw and believed. Believed that the new creation had begun. Believed that the world had turned the corner out of its long winter and into spring at last. Believed that God had said yes to Jesus, to all he had been and done, John believed that Jesus was alive again. And John's vocabulary here is intentional. That's me, that's not N.T. right? He makes it a point, John makes it a point to reveal the moment he believed in the resurrection of Jesus. John tells us the moment he believed because John wrote his gospel so that you might believe. Listen to the purpose of John's gospel in John 20, verses 30 for 31. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Amen. The purpose of the gospel of John is that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you may have life in his name. Throughout the gospel, throughout John's gospel, John has been leading us to this. John has told us that Jesus is truly God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1.1. John has revealed to us that Jesus is truly man. 
The Word became flesh and He dwelt among us, John 1.14. John tells us that Jesus un- understood Himself to be the Christ, to be the anointed one of God. The word Christ, in case you're unfamiliar, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It is his title. So Christ is the Greek word. Yeah, there's, there wasn't like a mailbox in Nazareth that said comma, Christ, comma, Jesus. Christ is his title. He's Jesus the Christ. Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. Messiah means the anointed one. So in the Old Testament, there were three anointed offices, the prophet, the priest, and the king. And so when Jesus comes and declares himself to be the Christ, he's saying, I'm the truly anointed one. I am the fulfillment of all the prophets, the priests, and the kings. Jesus was, John tells us that Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit at his baptism. John, John 1, 29 through 34. So Jesus is the one to whom all the prophets, all the priests, all the kings in Israel's history pointed to. And Jesus is not only the Christ, he is the Son of God. When Scripture calls Jesus the Son of God, it is not only saying that he is the eternal second person of the Holy Trinity, though he is, that is true. But Scripture is also telling us that Jesus is the true Israel. At the Exodus, Exodus 4, verses 22 through 23, Yahweh calls Israel his son. He says, Moses, you go to Pharaoh and you tell him to let my son go. Israel, under the old covenant, is the son of God. Jesus applies this language to himself because not only is he the second person of the Holy Trinity, but he is also the true and final Israel. Jesus is the meaning of Israel's existence and the meaning of their history. Israel has no meaning, no history, no existence, now or ever, apart from Jesus of Nazareth. He is the true Israel. Not only that, but Jesus is also the last Adam. In Luke's genealogy of Christ, he ends it in Luke 3.38 by calling Adam the son of God. Jesus is the last Adam. Jesus is the true son of God. Jesus came to right Adam's wrong. As the federal head of humanity, Adam's sin cursed the world. Romans 5.12 says sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. As the federal head of the new humanity, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection uncursed the world. The reversal of the curse begins with the resurrection of Jesus, and as Pastor Kevin even mentioned earlier, it has been spreading into the hearts of all who believe for the last 2,000 years. Scripture tells us that the world will finally and fully be uncursed when Jesus returns to raise the dead, judge the world, and make all things new. Jesus is the last Adam. Jesus is the true Israel. Jesus is the Son of God. And this is the story that the the Bible has been telling us the entire time. That's why in verse 9, John gives us this parenthetical statement. He says, For as yet... They did not understand the scriptures 
that he must rise from the dead. So at this point, historically, John had believed that Jesus rose from the dead, but he still didn't understand everything that Scripture had been teaching all along, namely that Jesus must rise from the dead. But Jesus himself in Luke 24 tells us that the resurrection of Christ is woven throughout the entire narrative of the Old Testament from beginning to end. We first see shadows of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the very beginning when God caused life to rise up from the ground on the third day of creation. Listen to Genesis 1, 11 through 13. God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its own kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. We hear it for the first time explicitly in Genesis 3.15, when Yahweh promised that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. We catch a glimpse in Genesis 22, where Abraham is called to offer and sacrifice his only begotten son, Isaac, and they get to the mountain on the third day where Isaac experiences a type of resurrection as the ram in the thicket becomes the substitute for his sacrifice. We see it in Exodus 19 when Israel comes to Mount Sinai after the Exodus and they they get there where Yahweh's gonna give them the Ten Commandments and guess which day they get to Mount Sinai? The third day. We hear it in the prophets. Pastor Kevin read from Hosea 6 in our call to worship. In Hosea, uh, Hosea predicts, he prophesies that Yahweh will resurrect Israel on the third day. He says, come, let us return to Yahweh, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. There are shadows of the resurrection in the writings. Esther prepares the banquet for the king on the third day in Esther 5.1. On Friday night, Pastor Kevin at our Good Friday service preached from Psalm 22 and we saw how that was pointing us to the death and resurrection of Christ. Not just the death, but also the resurrection of Christ. And guys, that's just naming a few. That was a handful The entire Old Testament is about the promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ that is fulfilled on this very first Easter Sunday. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John tells us all of this. Why? So that we might believe. And by believing, have life in Jesus' name. The call of the gospel isn't merely to know all of these truths about Jesus Christ. It isn't even merely to assent that all of those things are true. Knowledge and assent are both necessary components of faith, but the final component is to trust, 
to believe. It's so that you might believe the only reasonable and acceptable reaction to the empty tomb of Jesus Christ is to believe. Are you looking for meaning or purpose in your life? The answer is found outside of Jerusalem in a tomb that is still empty. He is risen indeed. The one true God who created all things created you in his image. The Westminster Catechism says that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That is why you were created. The problem is you don't glorify God and enjoy him because you're a sinner. From conception, you have inherited a sin nature. You sin in word, thought, and deed. Earlier in our confession and pardon, Pastor Brett led us as we read from the Book of Common Prayer together, which says that we have sinned by what we have done and by what we have left undone. Scripture says that you have offended the one true holy God because you have missed the mark. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And you will die because of your sin. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. Maybe it'll be today. Maybe it'll be in a hundred years or anywhere in between, but you will die and I will die. Every single one of us, like every single human who's ever lived is going to die because of our sin. Are you ready for that? Do you know what the meaning and purpose of your life is? Do you know what the point of history is? What's going to happen on that day? Because whether you understand it or whether you believe it, when you close your eyes in death, you're going to open your eyes in eternity. You're going to be awaiting the resurrection, either in heaven or in hell. And where you're going to be is based solely upon whether or not you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing have life in his name. Jesus is the son of God who took on humanity in his incarnation. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. He lived without sin. He died in the place of sinners, of his people on the cross. He was buried and he rose from the dead on the third day. If you will place your faith in him, he will forgive your sins and you will inherit the hope of resurrection and eternal life. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the turning point of history. It is the center of why God created all things. Look to the empty tomb this morning for there you will find the meaning of life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask now that you would bless your word. Father, we ask for any who 
are not trusting in Jesus, that you would take your word and you would, on this Easter morning, resurrect their dead hearts. Father, that you would open their eyes to see the beauty of who Jesus is and what Jesus did, that they would repent and believe the good news. Father, we ask for your people that you would sanctify us for your glory and for our good. Jesus, we ask that you would commune with us for this Easter feast this morning. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would teach our hearts to pray as the Lord Jesus taught us when he said, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Church, rise now.